Reckless abandon. Have you ever thought about that term? Reckless abandon. If you, if you take the two separately, they're both kind of negative terms, aren't they? I mean, recklessness is not something we normally encourage. How many of you encourage your kids to go out when they first learn to drive a car and say, go be reckless, <laughs> right? None of us. We're terrified that they will be reckless. So, so reckless on its own is, is not something we generally embrace. How many of you like the feeling of being abandoned, <laughs> of abandonment, right? On, on its own, abandon is, is not a necessarily positive term. And yet when we put those two negative words together, I guess two negatives do make a positive, right? As, as I thought about this, what, what most illustrates reckless abandon? And, and I, I picture a puppy. Right, have you ever had a little puppy and, and you haven't been with the puppy for a while and you, you let it out? What does it do? It races around with reckless abandon, right? It is so overfilled with joy that it can't wait to see you and it can't stop wiggling and moving and jumping and it, it just can't contain itself. It, it just flies all over the place. And then if you, if you combine two puppies and let them loose together, it's crazy reckless abandon, right? They, they race around and they tackle each other with no concern for consequences. Right? They, they race all over the yard and, and jump on each other and roll all over the place and smash into each other and all, all sorts of crazy stuff happens with no regard for the consequences because they are just overflowing with joy. And let them get anywhere near you and their tongue just can't stop licking, right? Puppies are the ultimate description for me of reckless abandonment. As, as we look at that term, what, what does reckless abandon mean? When we put them together, reckless abandon is, is going out and doing something without fear of the consequences. You just go 100% and you don't worry about the consequences. You don't worry what might go wrong, what might happen, what, what bad thing may come your way. Reckless abandon, you just go 100%. As we put those two together, as we examine that, Today we're going to take a look at how that describes the love of God. So, so if we take them apart, is God reckless? <laughs> does, does God abandon us? <laughs> does, does God leave things without consideration? No, he doesn't do either of those things. And yet when we put them together, well, we find God doing some things that maybe we wouldn't think of. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, if you will, this morning. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The whole context for this, this parable is important. Sinners and tax collectors come together and they... They crowd around Jesus. Is that the picture that we carry of God? When you picture the almighty, holy God of the universe, complete righteousness, when you picture him in your mind, do you picture a crowd of sinners crowding around that almighty, holy, righteous God of the universe? We don't normally put those together, right? That's not our, our first 
picture that we paint in our minds when we think about God. And th th this passage opens that, that the religious leaders are troubled because God in the flesh is surrounded by sinners. Now, now as, as you look into the, the, a little deeper into this passage, it's, it's not just any sinners, right? Priests and rulers, they were okay with several different types of sin. Greed, that was just fine, right? Anything they could do to enrich themselves, they, they weren't concerned with greed. Um, pride, that was not a concern for them. That, that sin was something they were okay with, right? The, the more elevated they could make themselves, they were okay with that. They weren't, con they weren't concerned with greed and pride. They weren't concerned with, with selfishness and, and taking for yourself, right? They weren't even really concerned with murder. If, if someone gets in your way, get rid of them. If someone takes away from your power and your prestige and, and your source of enriching yourself, right? You just, just wipe them out. They're, they're secretly trying to figure out how to get rid of Jesus, even if it takes murder to happen. And yet they are very, very concerned with the sinners that are gathered around Jesus. The sinners they're concerned with were, were those who were sinning in a socially unacceptable way. Those, those whose sins would, would maybe make them look bad by being in association with them. They, they had this, this idea that, that you had to protect your reputation, your holiness, by, by not eating with those who were of a lower social status. In, in fact, those who were socially defiled or polluted. And so, so the fact that these socially unacceptable sinners were gathering close to Jesus deeply offended the religious leaders of the day. Tax collectors, of course, no one likes tax collectors. And, and these were tax collectors for an occupying force, right? The Romans were an outside force now occupying the country, so it wasn't, wasn't even like our elected leaders were taxing us. It's, it's an outside force imposing taxes. So, so these people were despised and hated. And Jesus comes along and he tells this parable. He tells this parable saying, Verse 4, what man of you, if, if you're looking for it, it's, it's Luke chapter 15, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Luke gives us some interesting insight here. It's a little different than, than the way we, we normally picture this, right? If, if you open up the Bible story book, and, and you read the, our, our, I don't know how many of you grew up with the, the Adventist Bible story, children's Bible story books, right? You open it up, the picture is the sheep are where when the shepherd leaves them. Where are the sheep in that picture? They're inside the fold, right? There's a rock wall that goes all the way around it. The shepherd's there and all the sheep are inside this, this rock wall that, that, that is built up, this, this wall of stones, and they are safe within, inside that fold and the shepherd leaves them to go out and find the one lost sheep, right? That's responsible. That would be the, the right thing to do. Make sure the, the 99 are safe and then you go out and you search for the one that's lost. But what does this passage say? Where does the shepherd leave the 99? Inside the fold? No, he doesn't. Where are the 99 sheep? They are scattered in the wilderness. They are out in rough country. They are not in a place of safety. There are wolves and lions and, and coyotes that have access to the 99. But one is lost, and what does the shepherd do? 
The shepherd leaves the 99 out there scattered in the wilderness and heads off to find the one that had lost. I would say that describes a pretty reckless shepherd, wouldn't you? That is, you are going after the one irregardless of you if you lose your means of, of support, your means of livelihood, right? If you own the sheep yourself, if it's your own herd, you're likely to lose half your sheep or more. Someone could come along and steal them. Half of them could be slaughtered, right? They, they could get, all get lost. It's not a responsible decision to make. And if you are a shepherd who works for someone else, guess what? You're going to lose your job. <laughs> you work for me and you do that. You leave 99 of my sheep out just rambling, you know, rambling around in the wilderness. You're fired. Anybody going to keep that shepherd on? <laughs> I don't think so, right? You want someone who's going to be responsible, and yet Jesus tells a story illustrating who God is and how he responds when one of us is lost, and he says God responds with reckless abandon. He leaves the 99 in the wilderness, and he goes after the one that is lost irregardless of the consequences. That's kind of concerning if you view yourself as part of the 99. <laughs> if you're the one who's lost... Man, that's comforting, right? If you've been praying for a son or a daughter or a family member, and you're like, man, God, why aren't, why aren't you answering this prayer? This is, this is rather comforting to realize that, man, God may not be listening to my prayer because he's not hanging out here. He's out searching for the one that is lost, right? He is, he is busy searching and seeking and trying to reclaim that one who is lost with reckless abandon. Not thinking of the consequences to himself. He leaves the ninety and nine and goes after the one. Verse five, and when he has found it, he gives it a good whipping. <laughs> it says, you scared me to death. <laughs> what are you thinking? You caused me all this, this drama and harm. No, when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And we begin to see a theme that runs through this whole section of parables. We don't have time this morning to unpack all the parables here in this section, but there is, is three parables Jesus tells in response to them condemning him for hanging out with sinners. And they all have a major theme that goes through every single one. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. What's the theme? What's the word that keeps repeating itself? There is joy in God's reckless pursuit of the one who is lost. More than the 99 who are just. Then he tells a story about a widow who, who loses a coin, right? And, and she finally finds it, and when she finds it, she calls together her friends and says, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. And then we find the most reckless of all the stories. Starts out quite reckless with leaving your sheep scattered out in the wilderness, and then ends up with a son who is lost. A son who takes half his father's wealth, his own inheritance, and he goes and he squanders it. 
And when he comes back, when he finally comes to his senses, when he finally realizes that he is lost, that he has done everything he can to isolate himself from his father, he comes back to the father. He abandons his search for meaning, his search for fun, his search for everything else, and he comes back to the one he knows who loves him above all else. And what does the father do? He throws a crazy party invites everyone around, sacrifices the fatted calf, and with reckless abandonment, celebrates the return of the one who is lost. Our God, when it comes to us, loses his mind, as it were. He is, he is reckless in his pursuit to save each one of us. He abandons all concern for himself. I mean, did Jesus have responsibilities in heaven? We assume so, right? The Bible seems to indicate that the, the, the Godhead ruled the universe together, and Jesus was an integral part of that. We, we see Jesus interacting right there, there in heaven throughout the Bible. There's hints and glimpses that, that he was involved in the rulership of the universe, and yet he sets all of that aside. He sets aside his responsibilities in heaven to come and seek after the one who was lost. The one who had, had rebelled against God. The one who had made a mess out of their world and out of their lives. And he comes with reckless abandon to seek after us. What an amazing God that is. What is an amazing picture of God that he is so overwhelmed by his passion and his love for you and me that he becomes reckless in his pursuit of us. That he becomes reckless in, in his desire, in his passion, in his pursuit to draw us back into relationship with himself. God desires each one of us so much that he sets aside the consequences. As we stop and think about it, Jesus could have lost everything when he came to this earth, right? One mistake, and everything is lost. One sin, and everything is gone. His, his access to get back to heaven, the hope, the opportunity for salvation of this earth, he puts everything on, on the line in order to save us. All of heaven is poured out in order to seek after and, and draw us back into relationship with God to, to save the one who is lost. And that came as incredible risk. In fact, we would call it irresponsible gambling if we were to, to lay out the odds, right? If you were to take a risk like that in trying to make some money, well, 50 to 100 years ago, you'd be disfellowshipped from the church for being a gambler, right? And yet God takes that kind of risk in order to connect with each one of us. Not the righteous, not the saved, not those who, who line up and look good in church. But Jesus says the ones who are socially unacceptable. The ones who you wouldn't be caught hanging out with because of the way it might make you look. Those are the ones that are drawn to our God. Those are the ones that, that want to be in his presence. That's the kind of love we see in our God. 
And it brings me to another question. Do, do I have that kind of a picture of God? What, what, would, what would stand in the way of me laying myself out before God like that? Right? What, what would stand in the way of me abandoning myself recklessly to the God who has recklessly abandoned himself to me? And there's one word that, that comes to mind. What is it that stands between us and a reckless abandonment of ourselves to this God? And the word that keeps ringing in my mind is fear. Fear, right? We're afraid to give ourselves fully over to this God. We're afraid to commit ourselves fully over to this God. Fear is what stands between us and the joy that God offers us. If you think about your life, what, what things have you done in your life that bring you the most exhilaration and joy? As I, as I think back over the years, racing my horse was one of those things, right? Once, once I got over the fear of riding that she was going to buck me off, and, and I learned to trust her and things, we, we would head out in the, in the neighbor's pasture. He had harvested the the, the weed or, or alfalfa, whichever it was, you know, he rotated his crops and things, whatever, whatever he was growing that particular, once he harvested it, we would head out and we would get in that pasture and, and you could run and run and run for miles. And there was nothing like you just, you and your horse just racing top speed as fast as she could go across that field. There was a sense of exhilaration, a sense of joy, a sense of freedom that comes in just letting go of all fear and going as fast as you possibly can across the field. Until she spooks. <laughs> I, was, I was racing across the field one time. Not, not, not an ounce of fear in me. And all of a sudden, a bird flew up on the side. And she, she shot off to the side. And I was not prepared for it. And I go headlong into the dirt. <laughs> Launch straight off. She's going that way. And I'm, I continue straight forward. You know, the physics of the whole thing. I, I keep going straight forward and, and find myself sinking lower and lower rather rapidly. Didn't have time to process. And, and, and I, I slam into the ground. Luckily, where she swerved, it was, it was an area of the field that had one of those big dust holes. You know, as, as it gets dry, the, the, the dirt kind of turns to powder. And so I got up covered head to toe in dirt. But there is nothing like that feeling, that exhilaration that comes when, when you let go of all fear. And, and fear is set aside and, and you can just do whatever it is you're doing 100%. There's an exhilaration to it. I mean, some people call it, you know, call those type of people who seek after that adrenaline junkies, right? But, but there are moments in our life where we are completely without fear. I'm not there with the mountain biking yet. <laughs> I know some, some of our folks in this church are, are recklessly abandoned, abandoned when they go to, to mountain biking. And, and one day I'll get there, but right, there's, there's the, all, all these different things that we do that we go out. And, and when you get to the point where, where the fear is gone, there's a level of joy, a, a level of, of exhilaration that comes with it. And, and Jesus describes that, that exhilaration, that joy that just overflows as what heaven is like. When one sinner reconnects with God, when one sinner repents and comes seeking after Jesus Christ, when one sinner lets go of that fear of God and embraces the God who has recklessly abandoned himself to a relationship with them. How do we get there? How do we get there? One other passage here that unlocks this for us. 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. 
verse 17. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 helps to unlock this for us. How do we get there? Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So, some, some translations say that, that we will not have fear in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. We have no fear for the judgment because perfect love casts out fear. Now we've got to rewind this a little bit. It starts out and says, love has been, what's the word there? Perfected among us. Love has been perfected among us in this. So if you are perfect, you have no fear of the judgment, right? Is that what this is saying? If you have perfect love, if you have perfected love to the level that God has perfected love, then you don't have to be afraid of the judgment. Otherwise, you better be shaking and trembling, right? That's not, that's not what it's saying at all. The, Paul uses a different word here. He doesn't use the word for sinlessly perfect. He, he could have chosen to use that word. But he doesn't use that word. He uses a word that, that would be better translated, and, and you may already know this, mature, right? Mature or even a better translation would be complete. Complete love, mature love, has no fear. If you stop and think about it, think back to the, the days when you first were interested in, in someone, right? You were interested in pursuing a romantic relationship with them. And, and generally speaking, before you, you go on that first date, there's a little bit of butterflies in your stomach, right? You think about calling them up and asking them a question, and, and instead of going directly to them, what do you do to try to lower your fear level? You know, talk to their friends, right? You know, talk to their friends, hey, is, is there any possibility that, that she might be interested, <laughs> that she won't flat turn me down, right? Is, is, is there any possibility that he, he might ask me to the bank, right? Is, is, is there, we do all these different things to try to lower our level of fear. Because we don't want to face rejection. That, that fear comes often in early stages of a relationship, right? When, when love is immature. But when, when love has matured, when love is complete, when you know that you are in love, when, when you know that you have, have loved each other and you are invested and you are safe with that person, there is no more fear in that relationship, right? Love over time has grown to maturity. Love over time has, has built a level of trust so, so you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to sneak around and go talk to her friend or his, or his friends, right? You, you know that, that that person desires your best good and you can trust yourself fully with them. And mature love has cast out all fear and it's a different kind of relationship. It's a, it's a different kind of relationship when love comes to maturity. It, it isn't really dealing with a, a perfect sinlessness. I, I was trying to figure out, you know, how, how do you illustrate this? And, and all of a sudden it hit me. This last week I was out picking raspberries. We, we, uh, for Father's Day this year, my wife and, and daughters got me some, some raspberry bushes. So we planted them out there, and, and they're producing a bumper crop. It's, it's awesome. First year I didn't know if we'd get anything, but, but they're growing like crazy. So every day we're going out and picking new raspberries. Well, I missed a day. <laughs> I missed it, and it was like, you didn't pick raspberries yesterday, did you? So I go out there, and it, it's dark, and, and I, I go to, so it's almost two days now that I haven't picked, and I go out there, and I'm, I'm looking around in the dark. I've got the four-wheeler out, so I shine the light from the four-wheeler on the, on the bushes, and I'm trying to pick the, bushes, the, the berries as best I can, sorting through which, which ones are, are ripe. And, and, 
and and I go back in the house and and we're looking through them and there's there's one that looks well not perfect <laughs> it's it's damaged you know when, when a berry gets really ripe and some of the the little uh, the bubbles I was gonna look up what they're called and I forgot to do that uh, on the on the berry they, they burst and so they're they're flattened and, and the berry doesn't look quite as is right perfect it's not perfect anymore Wendy's like well do we just toss this one out and I was like well let's she said, try it, just, just eat it. So I popped it in my mouth. <laughs> and man, it didn't matter that those, those little bubbles were birthed. It didn't matter that, that this berry didn't look perfect, that it looked maybe a little on, on, on the overdone side. It was amazing. Just that burst of sweet flavor in the mouth. It was perfection. That's what, that's what the apostle's talking about here when he, when he says, when love is brought to perfection. It's, it's that love is completed. Love has, has been brought to ripe. It is, it is sweet with that burst of flavor. It doesn't mean you have everything figured out. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you have a mature, ripened relationship with God where the fear is gone. You don't fear God anymore. That, that fear has been taken away because you understand his reckless love, his reckless pursuit for you. When love has come to that, that place, when love has been perfected among us, when it's been brought to maturity, we may have boldness in the day of judgment. We no longer fear the judgment because we understand who God is in relationship to us. We understand what he has done, what he has given. We understand that, that he, he gambled everything on us, and there is nothing he won't do to make sure we're with him for eternity. When we go into the judgment understanding that kind of love, experiencing that kind of love, there is no more fear. Instead, there is confidence. <laughs> there is confidence that this, this is the, do the day that God has been waiting for. This is the joyous celebration that he has been, been designing and preparing for all along. He is, he is preparing a feast unlike anything else to celebrate with us in that moment. That's who this God is. And those sinners around Jesus got it. Those sinners who were gathered around Jesus got it that, that this was the kind of God that was pursuing them. A God who wanted to embrace them with a love that, that went beyond comprehension. The crazy thing is the religious leaders didn't. I think it's a warning to all of us who, who have, have been religious our whole lives, right? We, we've grown up in religion. We know what's right and what's wrong, and we know how this whole thing is supposed to work and, and how we're supposed to line up, and, and there's a danger that we lose sight of the one thing that matters above all others, and that is that we were all lost, and it was the love of God that saved us in the first place, that we are all, apart from this reckless love of God, doomed to eternity apart from God eternal separation from this guy that no matter how long we have been a christian or walking with god no matter how good we look on the outside or on the inside that it is only this love of god that guarantees our salvation when our confidence and our trust is found there and is placed there we are aligned with the tax collectors and the sinners who delighted and celebrated to be close in the presence of jesus perfect love casts out all fear. It's an amazing and beautiful sentiment, but did you know science is actually confirming this? It's actually the way we are hardwired in our bodies. Love casts out fear. 
is, is, if they've studied this, there's a, a mix of, of chemicals that, that wash through your brain when you feel close to someone, when you feel in love. And it's, it's they've studied our brain and the way these things work, and, and they're still studying and they're still sorting through exactly how all of this works, but, but as, as they've studied, they find that, that when you're experiencing love and this, these, these chemicals are, are mixing and, and giving your brain a good love wash, if you will, that, that the areas of your brain related to fear, self-preservation, and, and, um, and, and, and inward focus, a, a desire, concern for self, are shut down. Did you hear that? When love is present, when these chemicals associated with, with love are washing up your brain and, and it lights up those, those love centers of, of your brain and, and the whole brain is lighting up and firing up, those areas of the brain that have to do with fear and with self-preservation shut down. Love casts out all fear. It's amazing. It's how God has designed us. It, it's, God, it's, it's how God has, has actually physically wired us that love really does cast out fear. It works that way in our human relationships. But those human relationships can only work that way fully and completely when we experience that reckless love of God poured out for each one of us. I find that kind of amazing, don't you? That a, a spiritual truth works out biochemically in the way our brain works. And science confirms this, this very thing. Whosoever, okay, sorry, verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed this. We have known and we have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This word repeats itself over and over. The abiding in God. See, God pursues us with a desire to have this, this relationship that will bring about this sense of joy, this sense of fulfillment in our lives, that will then overflow in our lives and, and work its way out in the lives and relationships of those around us. It's not just for us that God offers us this love. He wants this love to, to fill us to overflowing. Right? When, when, you, when you have an amazing experience, when, when you experience that moment of reckless abandon and, and the joy is overflowing, right? as the parables illustrated, you have to go out and tell someone. You have to invite someone to be with you in that moment. You've got to reach out and, and tell someone about that moment, right? And, and it, it multiplies the joy over and over and over again. It's the way God has designed it to work. And God says, I want you to abide in me, and I'll abide in you. This, this, this cycle of relationship, this cycle of love flowing from me back and forth and overflowing into the lives of those around you is what the Christian experience is intended to be. It's what this life is all about. I want you to live in this reckless abandonment of joy because you are in constant relationship with me. That the fear that the devil seeks to keep sticking in there, that the fear that the devil keeps trying to throw in there, that, that, that God is rejecting you, that God is cutting you off, will be washed away as the love of God 
washes over you again and again and again. And that you can then in turn give that message of hope to those around you. Reckless abandon. There's one other moment in my life I've experienced this kind of thing, and that is skiing, right? Skiing, I remember the first time I got to the top of the mountain. Now, now skiing is, is a little bit nerve-wracking as, as you get into it when you're learning, right? There's, there's, there's a fear that you're going to make a fool of yourself and embarrass yourself in front of everybody, first of all. Now, maybe some of you don't care and you're not wired that way, but, but I was wired that way. So I was afraid of how I may look in front of my classmates. And so, so there's, there's that, that nervousness in, in the pit of my stomach, right? And, and so finally I learned to ski and make a total fool of myself. My friends are still my friends, so okay. Uh, that fear was unfounded, but, but I learned how to ski, and now we get to the top of the mountain, and I've skied down, down runs for a, a few weeks, and, and I want to I get on that black diamond run, right? And so there, there at Blue, and I don't know however, however many of you have skied at Blue, you know, outside of Walla Walla an hour or so. So I'm, I'm there at the top and, and getting ready to go down my first black diamond, and, and I come up to the edge, and I can't see over, right? First of all, that, that's scary in the first place. You're like, how steep is this? And you can't see over the edge. And so finally, you get up there where your, your skis are sticking out of the edge, and you can finally see down the other side. And, and the fear factor is, is growing and growing and growing, right? Yeah, I, this was in the 90s, and, and that no fear uh, you know, design was, was a big deal. Logos everywhere and things. Well, I had fear. <laughs> Uh, I was there, and I was looking down, and it was a mogul run, so it wasn't well-groomed, and it was, it was steep. There were mo I really hadn't done many moguls before, and, and, and a friend of mine who was a much more experienced skier than I said, all right, let's go, let's go, let's do this thing. So he drops over, and he just starts weaving his way down, and it looks, it looks like a blast. It looks like so much fun, and, and I'm there, okay, I'm, I'm telling myself, tip over the edge, tip over the edge, and, and the skis just won't go, right? The skis have now caught the fear, and they won't move. They won't go over the edge. I, I don't know what it is. When you're afraid, your body, like, locks up, and you just, you can't jump, you can't move, oh, you can't move forward, right? Your, your body just locks down, and, and you're, you're unable to physically, so finally, you know, like, scoot, ski forward a little bit, and scoot the other ski forward a little bit, and get, get to the very edge, and, and finally the skis tip, and I go over the edge. <laughs> and I'm terrified, scared to death, and, and I'm going down, and, and when you're terrified, you, you don't do as well, right? You're, you're nervous, you're, your muscles are, are stiff, and, and you're not loose, you know. And, and so I'm going down, and I'm trying to navigate, and I go over the top of one mogul and, you know, drop. You're not, you're not staying where I'm supposed to, you know, hitting the edges and, and curving between. And about halfway down, I hit one just really hard, and, and one ski just disappears. And I'm there, I'm wrecked on, on the slope, and, and looking all around me, I did, did the ski, you know, dig into the snow. I'm, I'm digging around trying to find the ski. And, and all the way down at the bottom, my, my buddy and his dad are down there waiting for me. And, and he, start, he takes off his skis and he starts hiking back up the hill. And about halfway between the bottom of the hill and the middle of the hill where, where I was, he finds my ski. It had gone on down without me. It's like, enough of this guy. I'm, I'm going to have fun and end up down the hill. So he, he hauls it back up and gets it back up to me. And, and I was miserable and it wasn't a bit of fun and I hated it. <laughs> Until I practiced enough that the fear was gone. And once the fear was gone, and I had confidence that I could, I could do this run, all of a sudden everything changed. And now, now I'm looking over that edge, and I'm looking, okay, here's, here's the route, here's the line I'm going to take, and there's an awesome jump over on that side. And I've got to hit that jump. So go flying down that hill, hit that jump, and go sailing through the air, and there's a sense of, of joy and exhilaration unlike anything. And it hit me, that's what God experiences every time one of us turns and embraces Him. That's what's going on in heaven when God draws a sinner back into relationship with himself. God has recklessly abandoned himself to you and me so that we can let go of all fear and recklessly abandon ourselves back to him in that, in that relationship of love 
that drives out all fear. This is the life that God invites us to. As we, as we sing this song, I, I want you to, to sing it again and carry it with you this week. And, and as you go through this week, I want you to, to picture this God, this view of God, this view of, of what the Christian experience is supposed to be like. A relationship of love with God that drives out all fear to the place where the joy overflows and other people are like, man, I want that. I want that kind of a relationship with God, a relationship of reckless abandonment to each other.